Nice to see everybody tonight. Just a reminder that uh, there's a sit from 7 o'clock to 7.25, and everybody's welcome. If you can get here at least by 7.05, you're welcome to join for that sit. But if you come after 7.05, then wait for the 7.25 bell before coming in the room, and that way we can keep the space quiet for those who are able to get here a little earlier. But feel free to sit in the lobby or in the community room while you're waiting for the 725 bell. And we'll have small groups at the end of the evening, save the last 25 minutes or so. Um, And I want to continue talking about the First Noble Truth, but want to check in and clarify any um, questions around the one way you might practice. So whether you do the formal mindfulness of breathing or not, really regardless of how you develop your meditation practice, when things get more steady, the mind's more even, steady, then that means the mind is opening or connecting, seeing things, seeing the experiences that are coming to go, not in terms of, oh, I'm breathing in, oh, I'm breathing out, but there's the sensation, and right there with the actual sensation is a feeling. It feels like something. So don't think of the feeling tone as being different than the experience that's being known. It's just a matter of not the mind not being confused by the concept, so it's there in a more direct and immediate way, in this case with sensation, but it could be the feeling of a thought or the feeling of emotion. Every experience that's being known, part of what's being known is the feeling of it. And it's not like, you know, when we say there's the sensation of a touch, and then there's the feeling of the touch, and then there's the perception of the touch, and then the mind is conscious of the touch. We talk about all these different aspects, the five aggregates, but they're not really different. It's just this experience that's being known, and it's really understanding this from different, you know, looking at it in different ways. So we're looking, practice, when your mind is steady and refined, practice being aware of the feeling tone in a continuous way. Because it's, that's really the birthplace of dukkha and where dukkha ceases, where stress arises and stress ceases is always in relationship to feeling. The, you know, sort of in conventional terms, we say, I don't like that feeling. I like that feeling. I don't really care about that feeling. It's not relevant to me. So we tend to ignore neutral, which is stressful. Ignoring something is stressful. Wanting something to last because it's pleasant is stressful. Wanting to get rid of a feeling because it's unpleasant is stressful. Letting feelings be feelings is not stressful. But it's, you know, it's relatively subtle to be continuous with the feeling tone. So you might work with that. And you, for those of you who work with your breath, like you do with the different other objects that go with the breathing practice, feeling the actual sensations of the breath, feeling the sensations of the whole body, feeling a sense of calm in the body, feeling a sense of joy in the mind, feeling the sense of ease in the heart. 
the next level of refinement is being aware of feeling as feeling. And then notice how being aware of the feeling without being confused is quieting for the mind. Because learning to be with feeling without doing anything with the feeling takes away the cause for agitation. So the mind then, of course, becomes quiet, quieter. So any questions about the instructions for the meditation that come to mind? Julia. Yeah. But the but the thing is it we have to be really honest with how the mind is in any moment because if if we can't really be with how it feels, you know, whatever's predominant, whatever the mind is knowing, how does that feel? If we need to sort of name it, it may be better to cultivate uh a steadiness, more steadiness, a more refined instrument. That may be a better use of the, the time, the practice time, is to steady the mind. And the way we often do that is we notice things that are neutral, have a feeling tone of neutrality and pleasantness in a, in a wholesome sense. So this is a little different, you know, like basic... Vipassana practice is you just notice what's ever predominant. But often, you know, especially if we're walking in off the street with our busy lives, we sit down, a lot of what's moving is not so pleasant. So if we're just getting instructions, uh, Vipassana instructions to just notice whatever's predominant, we find ourselves, okay, now there's this and there's this, that a lot of those thises that we're noticing are unpleasant. And if there isn't enough wisdom and, and momentum in practice, even if we don't realize it, we're cultivating aversion and we're using our mindfulness to get rid of things. So it's, you know, it's one thing if you're doing, able in your life to do a lot of practice and you maybe even have a natural talent for calm and your mind is relatively steady, then you can go right to open awareness practice, which is basically feeling tone will become one of the more predominant things because you're not talking to yourself about what's coming and going. You're not expecting or controlling what's coming and going. So what is coming and going is the feeling tone. And then if the mind's really um, even more refined, like not pushed around by feeling tone, so it gets really quiet, then the mind is can become aware of the mind. So there's a space of the mind and there's all this different activity, right? And so that, that's even more refined in a sense. Uh, see the formations, the constructions, the different activities in relationship to space, to the moment. Because that's, that's a pretty refined object of awareness to have a sense, oh yeah, this. So it's just a matter of where the mind is. So if you find it difficult to be aware of the feeling in a continuous way without naming it. I mean, in daily life, it can be useful to no, to name or to notice, to, to acknowledge when things are really unpleasant, to literally acknowledge that of the mind, or when things are very pleasant, to acknowledge it, because it can interrupt the pattern of reactivity. Oh, this is really unpleasant. I mean, it's so useful, like if, you know, you're entrenched 
in some argument or some disagreement with another person and you, you know, and all of our politically correct ways are fighting with the other person, to just acknowledge how unpleasant that tightness is. Oh, this really hurts. This really hurts. This is really unpleasant. Or it's just as important to acknowledge it when it's pleasant. But in the course of sitting, that the words themselves are pretty, relatively speaking, are gross compared to the awareness of the feeling tone. So they might actually interrupt the really seen feeling tone as it is. It's like hard for me in the in a more refined state to say this is unpleasant without the concept unpleasantness distorting the experience of that feeling. But you can just see how it helps or doesn't help. Anything else? Yes, Bruce. Right. Yeah. So remember the progression where we go from being aware of joy, which has a distinctly pleasant flavor, to ease, which has an even more uh, refined and resonant pleasant flavor, right? So we're specifically instructing the mind, directing the mind to notice these very pleasant aspects of experience and to not notice the other less pleasant, maybe unpleasant. And then... The next instruction is, now I'm not directing my attention towards what's pleasant, like calm, like joy, like ease. I'm just letting experience come and go, the feeling, whatever it is. But having paid attention to what is pleasant really helps support the continuity and the quieting of the mind. But now you're not trying to figure out because whatever you're feeling is what's being felt. And so we'd never have to question whether that's the right feeling or what's the right feeling. Because there are many, you know, whatever object the mind knows, that has a feeling. And the feeling will always correspond with what's being known. And, you know, we can know a lot of things. You know, there's so many aspects. Some will be pleasant, some will be neutral, some will be not neutral. The question is, can we be with the feeling tone without adding anything? That's the question. Can we allow it to be, whatever the feeling tone is? So we're transforming the relationship to feeling tone there, at that level. And seeing when we don't, we see like little births and deaths of suffering, becoming a suffering being, like holding on, like if to whatever degree that more even feeling you were aware of, to whatever degree the mind wanted to keep going back to that feeling and know that feeling, that was dukkha. The feeling isn't dukkha. The feeling sounds like really nice. But any dependence the mind had on that feeling, wanting to continue to know it, that's the dukkha. Or any feeling like uh, that, you know, whatever the unpleasantness of the hand moving or the arm moving was, you know, that's dukkha. Any judgment, any any evaluation whatsoever is stressful. This is what I, what I was saying in regards to Julia's comment, that sometimes just the mind conceiving that this is unpleasant, that 
evaluation itself, having to do that itself, is tight, tightening in the mind. Yeah. Right. But, but in the, you know, with, because you can, you could pay attention to that experience in different ways. But in terms of the instructions, that, if it was confusion, that confusion had a feeling. If it felt really stable and beautiful, that had a feeling. So it doesn't matter what it was, it had a feeling. And so the, the question is, can that be okay, that feeling? Yeah, Raha. And then we'll go on to the subject at hand. I, I missed that last part of the sentence. Mm-hmm. The mental activity, and then I didn't catch that next word. Oh, as an anchor, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, feeling is the anchor. And that's a very useful anchor in understanding the birth and ending of stress. So instead of thinking of ourselves as I'm a suffering being, it's more accurate to say there are moments of suffering and there are moments of that suffering ceasing. Sometimes there's I'm a suffering being and sometimes I'm not a suffering being. And to really start seeing it as in its sort of the underlying mechanism of suffering coming to be, suffering ceasing, and seeing its correlation with the mind's relationship to feeling to the feeling, and to be able to use it as an anchor. But, you know, the anchor, we choose an anchor dependent on how refined the mind is in any moment. So when the mind isn't very refined, we use a very not refined anchor like walking, you know, just the physicality of walking or the physicality of breathing in and breathing out or feeling the body sitting. Because even with a pretty gross mind, in moments, we can connect with that experience. Even when our mind is really distracted or agitated, I can, in moments, touch the experience of the body, the physicality of the body. So, we're working, as all of you know, with the Four Noble Truths. And uh, it really is, uh, I think, a good way, and this could be useful in your small groups, is to ask in a general way, as you sense your life and the trajectory of your life and the values that inform your life, what's important or what, you know, I'm living, I'm choosing to continue to live, to what end? What is the problem or what is it that this life is here to address? What problem is there to solve? What am I doing? Right? And to hold the Four Noble Truths in that way. Like, what are, what is this about? And last week I talked about that paradigm shift from a life of acquisition, putting together a lot of good experiences, now to a life of understanding. Like, understanding dukkha and its cessation. That that's what I care about. Because the other mode, um, it, it makes all kinds of assumptions. It's not like it's wrong, like I want to get these things in order to be happy. But it makes a lot of assumptions about the me who wants to be happy and the things, the experiences I think that will make me happy. So what is the problem we're attempting to address? And, you know, one way we can say it, 
um, is, well, this world is uncertain, it's messy, it's ungovernable, so I'm addressing that by taking control of my life. You know, as skillfully, as competently as I can, I am directly, my life is being lived, the problem I'm trying to solve is the ungovernableness and uncertainty of life. I'm trying to modify that as much as I possibly can and maybe even, you know, beat the system. So that's, so from this perspective, I'm trying to solve the problem I think the self has. The self has this problem of living in an uncertain world that's hard to govern because I don't control everything. So I'm trying to solve that problem that I have. Now, the Four Noble Truths is trying to solve the problem that the self is. It's different than trying to solve the problem that the self, the idea that the self has a problem. And it's, see, that's what I mean. It's sort of like there's a lot of assumptions in me trying to solve the problems that I think I have. So we're stepping back in a sense or we're doing deeper work. Okay, what is the problem that the self is? Let me address that issue, the the problem that the self is, which is I don't like the fact. So I'm, I'm looking at that, the I that doesn't like the messiness, the ungovernableness, the uncertainty of life. So instead of addressing the uncertainty of life, the ungovernableness of life, I'm getting interested in the guy who doesn't like it. What's that about? What is that guy who doesn't like it? Right? And the Buddha had a very, I think it was goes all the way back to the Buddha or way back uh, many hundreds of years um, about, you know, are we, if we keep stepping on something sharp as we walk around barefoot, are we going to cover the world in leather or are we going to make a pair of moccasins? You know, what is the best way to address the fact that there are a lot of sharp objects out there that we keep stepping on? And it's the same thing, it's the same metaphor about, okay, I'm going to make this world more governable, more certain, more the way I want it to be. That's like trying to cover the world in leather. And getting interested in the I don't like the ungovernableness, the messiness, the uncertainty. And getting interested in that I is learning how to make a pair of moccasins. Like how do we live, become a a movement, you know. A, I like that. It's like uh, now they call, there's a mindfulness movement. Well, we're a movement too, you know. There's this sort of t- trajectory. And now we're a movement, we're sort of cultivating a movement that's interested in the I don't like, I want. The I in that. Not the what I want or what I don't want, but the I that wants something or the I that doesn't want something. What is that? Because of course, just logically, if you take away the I, where's the problem? Where's the problem when you take, there's the problem, any problem, the concept of problem requires a subject, the somebody who has a problem. So that's why this set of teachings around the Four Noble Truths that's why we want to be really careful with how we talk about the first noble truth because superficially people translate it as there is suffering. 
but it's that's not really the best definition or translation of the word dukkha. I mean, dukkha includes suffering, but it's really more that experience is unsatisfying, it's limited. And that's true for somebody fully awake as it is for somebody who's just an ordinary human being. Experience is always going to be uncertain and um, ungovernable. doesn't matter if you're a fully awake Buddha or any being with any kind of mind. What's coming and going is uncertain and it's not governable by any entity. It's determined or it comes into being because of so many interdependent causes. So, but there won't be suffering. I mean, by definition, when we say someone who's fully awake, we mean somebody who doesn't suffer due to the limited, uncertain, unsatisfactory nature of experience. That's what being awake means. Yeah, Casey. Well, what you could say is there wouldn't be anybody having a problem with the uncertain, ungovernableness. And if you want to call that, certainly the Buddha did call that a happiness, right? So, but it's an unconditioned happiness. It's not the happiness of the pleasantness of the experience. It's the happiness of the absence of the sense of a somebody who needs it to be, who's dependent on it being a particular way. So I think it's a, I think it's appropriate to say that that's pleasant or that's a happy state. But it's sort of in a different realm of happiness. And you get this even, you get the flavor of this even in concentration or even in a really quiet sit where uh, some parts, sometimes in sitting, there's a lot of pleasantness and there's a lot of appreciation and enjoyment of that pleasantness. And then there's other times when the mind gets quieter that it doesn't even care about pleasant and unpleasant. It's just, it's all it cares about or all it is uh, orienting around is release or stillness. The, the stillness of a mind that doesn't care about pleasantness and unpleasantness. And that's even, that's a more profound kind of happiness to not be in the pleasant and unpleasant business. Most beings, to be a normal being, human being and probably other beings, it means we're in the business of pleasant and unpleasant because the whole apparatus of mind and body, this embodied form, is built to deal with pleasant and unpleasant and take its cues from pleasant and unpleasant. And that's stressful. So it's interesting, like in Theravada Buddhism, they make a big deal of when a fully awake person dies because while they're still alive, they're still living with this in this embodied state that's built to react to pleasant and unpleasantness. So they may know that, yeah, of course, this is what's going on, this is getting triggered, that's getting... And know that it's just that, it's just nature. But it's like seductive nature. And when that whole apparatus goes away, you know, that sort of merging back into who knows what... (laughs) That's parinibbana, that's sort of highlighted, that's a big deal, parinibbana, when the apparatus of reactivity ceases, the body and the sort of structures, forms of that body end at the time of physical death. 
then the fully awake being is is no longer tied to that apparatus. So when someone, I mean, this is sort of more esoteric, but it might be interesting to some of you, when a, someone has full awakening, then they're no longer creating karma because it's just nature. But it's nature, in that case, being expressed or moving with that apparatus. And then that expression of nature, you know, that apparatus turns back to dust. And then what remains is the great mystery. But we know we know intuitively as we practice and explore the nature of the mind, nature of the heart, we know intuitively, directly, immediately, it's completely trustworthy and it resolves all problems. Whatever fear, whatever desire that you know, the mind is inclined to want to deal with, all of that gets resolved. So that's why if human beings have the good fortune to be reflective enough, then it becomes like a, sort of like a computer virus. It begins to, the mind can't let go of this sense of freedom. It's what the heart truly desires. Or, it's where the system will gravitate to if it ever catches the scent. But it has to catch the scent of freedom, the possibility of freedom. And mostly we're so distracted being in the pleasant, unpleasant world because of the apparatus, the experience of embodiment, we never are reflective enough to intuit the possibility of real peace. The peace of letting go, the peace of not being driven by these natural forces and to whatever degree there's an identification with that that sort of play of nature. So that's why they say the better definition of dukkha is uh, really pointing to the limited, like the uncertain, the ephemeral, the can't-be-ground nature of experience. And an ordinary human being has a problem with the uncertain ephemeral nature of experience that I can't really create the ground of safety that me as an ego wants. But an awake person doesn't make suffering out of the reality of experience being uncertain and ungovernable and can't be turned into solid ground. That's not a... we, And we see that already because we see some moments... It's a huge problem and we really suffer. And there are other moments in our life, right, where we don't have that much of a problem with the ephemeral, uncertain, ungovernable nature of our experience of our lives. We are somewhat at peace. So this is the thing. We don't, it's kind of interesting to talk about awakening to the nth degree and our, what we call in Theravada Buddhism an arhat, fully awake human being. But it's much more useful to have our own sense, our own direct experience of moving along that spectrum from really having a problem with the uncertain ephemeral nature of things, not being in control, and times of not having much of a problem with it and feeling relatively liberated and um, free of fear in those moments. And then 
now that because we're paying more attention, it should beg the question, well, might this be the way to live? This fearlessness, this not having a problem with change, with the ephemeral, uncertain, limited nature of experience. Limited not in a negative sense. The Buddha never said experience is bad. It's just what it is. You know, the sort of play of causes and conditions. So I thought in the small groups you could talk about like both in a very ordinary, primitive way, like how your mind conceives, like when you ask yourself, what's the problem? Or we've used this before in Buddhist studies, like if a young adult, maybe let's say a niece or a nephew or a younger sibling, if you yourself are pretty young, would come up to you and, you know, suffering in life for whatever reason and deeply or sincerely ask you for advice. What do you know about being happy? I mean, really, what? Please, anything your life has taught you about what actually leads to your happiness, what actually leads to your unhappiness, what can you tell me? So how would you respond? Like, what is the fruit of you paying attention to the experience of stress and the absence? Like, that was the, that's the big line in the 45 years of the Buddhist teachings. I teach Stress and the release of stress. Suffering and the release, the going beyond of that suffering. Many other things I could talk about, right? I mean, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but that's actually what's relevant. Stress and the ending of stress. So what would you say? Like, what is the cumulative knowledge, understanding we have about that? And to be really honest in the small groups, like, you know, like to confess our confusion or it could be quite useful actually to outline all of the wrong ideas we've had through life about what leads to happiness what causes stress right because there are a lot of times we see events in other people's lives and we assume they should be unhappy because that's happening to them if i looked like that i'd be unhappy or if i had that job i'd be unhappy if I were that old, I'd be unhappy. If I had to be a teenager again, I'd be unhappy, right? I mean, it's really easy for us to sort of put that on other people or to say the opposite, that envy. Like, if only I had whatever this other person, the beauty that this other person has or the wisdom or the strength or the youth or the whatever. And then the, the, another thing you could bring up in the small group is just, uh, you know, with the, we, we, uh, maybe some of you read Stephen Batchelor's, um, article that we sent out that Bob had brought to our attention. But you know, he has these four quick ways of saying the four noble truths. Embrace, let go, stop, and act. I guess I didn't need my notes. Um, so you can, because embrace, of course, is the first step. So just share in the small group, what is in the way? What have you noticed is in, in the way of embracing the moment? What gets in the way? What attitude or idea or feeling makes it makes the moment feel not suitable for embracing, for including, for receiving? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.